It's Acts chapter 17 in your Bibles. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, normally we have extras, um, yet uh, we also give those Bibles away, and as it turns out, they've all been given away. And so we need to get more Bibles. So I don't have extra Bibles for you this morning, um, but uh, if you guys can help me uh, remember to order some new Bibles, we can uh, get on that and get some more Bibles for us. Um, what we're going to do this morning is an overview of the book of Acts, uh, particularly as it relates to Christian mission. But I want to root it in Acts chapter 17. So if you'll turn to Acts 17 with me and look at the first seven verses, uh, we're going to root uh, what we're uh, getting into here in these verses. And um, I don't have my notes, so let me see if I can find them. Otherwise, I'm going to have to wing this. <laughs> hold up, hold up. Yeah, they, they could be in the printer. <laughs> well, could they be on my computer? Good call. Here we go. You know, normally I don't use notes, or I don't use a lot of notes. However, because I'm doing an overview sermon, this would be like a terrible time to not have my notes. Because I'm like all over the place in Acts. Now, I could try to wing it, but uh, I've got them right here. Thank you. I feel like a, a, a hip pastor right now. You got like the whole Apple thing going on. This is what the cool pastors do. I'm typically not this cool. But this morning, well, let's get into Acts chapter 17, verse 1, and thank you, Jacob, and the Holy Spirit for that reminder. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. There was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some of the men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jacob, seeking to bring them out into the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as a security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Let's pray and ask God to help us. Father, we come into this word recognizing that we are entirely dependent upon the Holy Spirit to move in our hearts, to wake us up to the reality of uh, Jesus Christ. We pray, God, that the Holy Spirit would move in this way, that we would experience Jesus in our midst. We thank you, Father. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I heard a story recently of a man who got into his car and tried to turn the engine on, and it wouldn't turn on. The car wouldn't start. Uh, frustrated, he did what all of us do to try to fix our car. He banged on the steering wheel a couple times um, and then tried it again because that always helps. Uh, the car still did not turn on, so he called a friend of his who knows something about vehicles. The friend showed up and said, well, we should probably pop the hood and see what we're dealing with. They popped the hood, and they discovered what the problem was. The engine was gone. Someone had stolen 
his engine. Now, as goofy as that is, here's the reality, is sometimes you and I are trying to do something, do something for the Lord, we're trying to help somebody, we're trying to change somebody, or maybe we're trying to change ourselves, but we're doing so without any real power, because we're doing it on our own. I can give you a little example of this. There have been times, and I pray that this morning is not one of those times, where I feel like I have been preaching and I have no help. Not from you, but from God. Maybe I was not prepared spiritually to go into the Word. Maybe I was not, uh, maybe I had some sin, ongoing sin, unrepentant sin in my life. Whatever it might be, there is a sense in which we have all who, those of us who have been Christians for some time, we've had these moments where we realize, I'm on my own. I, th- I'm, I'm trying this on my own. And it's like trying to start a car without an engine. I want to talk to you this morning on this theme, turning the world upside down. Turning the world upside down. And I get this, I want to direct your attention to verse 6, the second part of verse 6, as these men are accused, ironically enough, as being men who have turned the world upside down. Now, I wonder if you are trying to do something in life and you have these grand ideas of impacting the world and changing your community or or even just seeing a, a loved one come to know Jesus Christ. And you might read the book of Acts and you might think, man, they did so many cool things. Let's just try to emulate that and try to manipulate that and get that going. Well, they have a power there that in some ways, actually in many ways, is unseen. I want to turn our attention this morning to the Holy Spirit, to the work of the Holy Spirit in our life and in our ministry. Because our default so often is to use human means, human strategies, human wisdom to try to manipulate situations to make something happen. And churches as a whole can do this. Churches sometimes are quicker to turn to church growth gurus to try to figure out how to grow their church as opposed to turning to the Lord in prayer. These men, as they accuse, these uh, uh, jealous Jews, as they accuse these Jesus-following Jews of turning the world upside down, accuse them of preaching another king other than Caesar, whose name is Jesus. Now, the irony of this accusation that comes in Acts 17 is how right they are. The irony is that the world has been and is being and will continue to be turned upside down by this proclamation of another king whose name is Jesus. But here's what the jealous men probably didn't realize is that it's not just simply these men who are doing it. It's not because of their management abilities. It's not because they have so, such great organizational skills. Or they're, they're, they're just so good with their words they can just influence people. It's not just because they've got these dynamic personalities that are so winsome and everybody's coming to them because they're just such a great personality. Listen, you can win for a while on your personality, but not long term. What I want to explore is the power behind their ministry this morning. I want to explore this topic of Christian mission all throughout the book of Acts. And I pray that as we do so, that we will see how integral the Holy Spirit is to Christian mission. 
And as we think of our own mission, whether it's individually in your own life or corporately as a church in Baltimore, that we will see how integral the Holy Spirit has got to be in our mission. Are you tracking with me? So let's turn back to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, we'll start there. What I want to see first is that Christian mission is fueled by the Holy Spirit. Now this is not my first point and the other points are going to be separate from this. This is my foundational point. Meaning all of my other points that I'm going to talk about in the sermon are all built off of this first point. So if you don't get this point, you're not going to get the rest. Christian mission is fueled by the Holy Spirit of God. In Acts chapter 1, we see this call in verse 4 to wait. Wait for what? Well, think of it. These are a people who are scared. These are a people who are hanging out in an upper room. They're they're followers of a, a, a crucified Messiah. Now, the Messiah has risen from the dead. He's appeared to them, but he's left. Like, have you ever just tried to wrap your mind around the fact that Jesus left? Have you ever tried to ask yourself, what what would it have been like to be one of his followers? So excited about the fact that he's risen from the dead, and then he says, I'm leaving. (laughs) What? Wouldn't it be better to stay? Now let's back up a little bit. How is it possible that you get a couple guys and girls in an upper room together, this small band of followers who are scared, who have a Messiah who's gone, all right? And within about a 30-year period, which covers the book of Acts, their message goes from that small group to the uttermost parts of the world. Well, it's because Jesus says in John 14, I have to leave. Because if I don't leave, I can't send the advocate. Who is the advocate? Not just a force. The advocate is the Holy Spirit. This is the third person of the Trinity. God of God. God of very gods. This is is God himself who Jesus has promised to send. And so what does he do? He leaves them, but in verse 4, he tells them to wait. Why do they need to wait? Well, because you see in verse 8 of Acts chapter 1, Jesus has given them a mission. They are called to be witnesses. Everybody say witness. Witness. What is a witness? Well, a witness is simply somebody who sees something and declares what they've seen or what they've experienced or what they've heard. This is how news happens. They are called, their mission in life, their whole identity. Now, hold up. These aren't pastors, all right? Some of them might, are going to become pastors, but these aren't like all just paid Christian ministers. You see what I'm saying? These are people like you. These are regular people who are making tents and they're, they're, they're working jobs and, and, and their whole identity now is wrapped around this concept of being a witness of Jesus Christ. Not just in Jerusalem, but Jesus says in Jerusalem and then to Judea uh, and then to Samaria and then to the uttermost parts of the world. Now, how is that going to be possible? Well, this is why Jesus says to wait. He says in verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be my witnesses. Let's pause right there for a second. They have to wait because they are going to receive the Holy Spirit. They need the Holy Spirit in order to have power to do what? Power not to just simply raise dead people, or power not to just simply do cool things, power not just simply to make a lot of money. What is their power? What is Holy Spirit power? It's to be witnesses. Um, You're going to receive the Holy Spirit so that you'll have power to be witnesses here and then throughout the rest of the world. There was a Norwegian explorer named Roald Emoldsen. 
I don't know if any Norwegians in the room. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. He was an explorer. He actually explored the North Pole and the South Pole, the first person to explore the two poles. On one of his expeditions, he told his wife, I'm taking homing pigeons with me. And when I arrive at my destination, I'm going to release the homing pigeons. Now, homing pigeons, they call them homing, I would imagine, because they go home. Uh, A homing pigeon flies from wherever, thousands of miles away, and it will fly right home. And so when when I reach my destination, I'm sending this homing pigeon to you as a sign. Well, uh, you can only imagine her delight and joy when she sees the homing pigeons flying into her window. This says, he's alive. He's sending me a message. Well, I can only imagine the initial disciples' uh, joy when they've been promised this Holy Spirit who's going to come. Not just a pigeon, pigeon, but God. And Jesus is gone. They're waiting. Can you imagine their joy when he comes? I think first it would make me say, he's alive. Like this is real. This wasn't just in our imagination. Like I I was pinching myself. he's, He's alive and he sent us the Holy Spirit. Well, and also when the Holy Spirit comes, it's not just simply confirmation that Jesus is legit. But the Holy Spirit comes as power to be witnesses. The story quickly progresses, and in Acts 2, they receive the Holy Spirit. Now, sometimes our debates about tongues and spiritual gifts and all this kind of stuff, it it, it overshadows the main point. When they receive the Holy Spirit, what do they do? They proclaim. They, in different languages, they have this ability all of a sudden to speak different languages, and they're proclaiming, what do they do? They're witnessing. We see Acts 1-8 like immediately begin to be applied and, and, and we begin to see it. The Holy Spirit comes and they have the power to witness. And then as Acts goes on, the Holy Spirit fills Samaritans in the same way that he fills Jews. And as he goes on, the Holy Spirit fills Gentiles, in the very same way that he fills Samaritans, we see Acts 1-8 fulfilled throughout the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit has come. Now, there's still a question that I want to explore very briefly, and that is this. What of the fact that some people are called full of the Holy Spirit? If the Holy Spirit does indeed fill all believers, why are some individuals occasionally referred to as being full of the Holy Spirit? So, for example, in Acts chapter 6, verse 3, we see that deacons are to be uh, these, these people who are filled, full of the Holy Spirit. Or uh, one of the first deacons at his martyrdom, Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, verse 55 He is proclaiming the gospel, and he's called there as uh, someone who is full of the Holy Spirit. Well, I don't think we should see this as two classes of Christians. You've got the regular Christians, and then you've got the second-blessed Christians, or the extra-filled Christians, or whatever you might call them. No, I I think this sense of being full of the Holy Spirit is something that uh, those of you who are godly in the room uh, know. I think it's, it's something actually that we would feel as very ordinary, and that is this. We are equipped for ministry. There's a sense in which uh, God has just filled us with delight in Him and joy in Him and boldness and courage to proclaim the gospel. Uh, in some ways, you could say it's opposite of being fill, full of sin. It's opposite of being full, filled with pride. It's opposite of being filled with arrogance. It's opposite of being filled with selfishness and greed, but we're filled with the Holy Spirit. This, this means then that Christians ought to strive to, as Paul says elsewhere, walk in the Spirit. If you walk in the Spirit, you're full of the Spirit, and you don't des- uh, fulfill the desires of the flesh, you fulfill the desires of the Spirit. But if you walk in the flesh, if you're filled with the flesh, you fulfill the desires of the flesh. My point is this. The Holy Spirit has come and fuels Christian ministry. 
My point is this. You, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in you. That means you are ready to be a witness of Jesus Christ. Now, someone might come along and say, yeah, but what about training? I need to be trained. True. Paul was trained for three years before he was sent out to plant churches. But what we're going to see at Paul's conversion is that as soon as he was converted, he started witnessing who Jesus was. You don't wait until seminary's over to start witnessing. You don't wait until you're a church planner to start witnessing. You don't wait until your kids are grown to start witnessing to them. No, we... As we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us as believers, we then immediately, what we do is we witness. We are witnesses as much as we are Christians. And you are prepared. You're ready to witness because you have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit fuels Christian mission. Secondly, the Holy Spirit, or I'm sorry, Christian mission is accomplished by the community. Christian mission is accomplished by the community. Now what I mean by that is Christian mission is not accomplished by the pastor or the pastors or the missionaries who are paid on the field. Christian mission is accomplished by the community. We see this theme also developed in Acts. Before we get into it, let me give you this quote. D.L. Moody once said, it is better to train 10 people than to do the job of 10 people. How many of you would agree with that? It is better to train 10 people than to do the job of 10 people. But then he goes on and he says, but it is harder to do so. That's true. Which is why a lot of times you get churches where the pastor does everything. Because it's actually harder to train up the flock it's easier to kind of do the work of 30, 40, 60, 80, 100, 150, 200 people. But that's not what the Bible calls us to. If anything, those in Christian leadership are trainers of missionaries, of ministers, of people who are equipped and ready for the task. And we see this throughout Acts. First, as the church is growing, it reproduces. This is what growing churches do. Like if we talk about church planting in this church, don't, don't think of that as something like, oh, that's, that's not something I'm about, or that's not something for me. I'm not a church planter, or, well, I really like this church. I'm not really concerned about planting other churches. That's not the right way to think. That's not Acts. As the church grows in Acts, what does it do? It reproduces. Sometimes intentionally, sometimes organically. It reproduces. Now, reproducing churches require leadership. And I don't just mean the one or two paid individuals who might be part of that church. In Acts chapter 9, verse 31, we see that the church is walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and there it multiplies. What we can learn from this is as the church walks in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, we are a growing and multiplying church. In chapter 14, verse 23, as these churches are multiplied, there are elders that are appointed over every single congregation, which means every church has a plurality of elders, a plurality of pastors who are overseeing and shepherding and guiding. And while there is no centralized leadership in Acts chapter 18, verse 23, what we see is that Paul is traveling from one place to another, from church to church, to check up on the churches to, and to make sure that they're doing well and healthy, meaning he's ongoing, there's this ongoing sense of training. In chapter 20, we see Paul meeting with elders and speaking with different elders of different churches. Now, it's not just the elders who are trained up and raised up. But regular members are equipped and useful and powerful for the work of Christian mission. In chapter 20, we see Paul takes people wherever, wherever he goes. 
So Paul's going uh, to the store or Paul's going to the synagogue to preach the God. He's taking people where he goes. It's just what he does. We could call that life-on-life discipleship. And he doesn't just take power. He takes out of anybody. People that he's developing, people that he's pouring into. One example of this would be in Acts chapter 18. We see this couple called Priscilla and Aquila. Now, they're a couple who Paul says, hey, come on with me and let's go. Paul just starts journeying with them. He takes them with them, with himself, where he goes, and Paul pours himself into Priscilla and Aquila. But check this out. After Paul leaves, there's this dude named Apollos. Apollos, he's this persuasive communicator. He's good with words, but his theology is a little whack. And Priscilla and Aquila have been, by God's sovereignty, left by Paul. And they hear Apollos preach, and they probably thought, man, this dude can speak. This dude can preach. And this dude's theology is terrible. (laughs) Now, we don't write people off like that. What do we do? We train them. They pulled Apollos aside. And in Acts 18, it says they taught him the way more clearly. Listen, these are tent makers. These are people just like you. These are people working nine to five, trying to pay their bills, working hard, trying to make some tents and sell them. And what are they doing? They are equipped by the Apostle Paul, and they are shaping the future of the church by speaking truth, by explaining the way of God to one of the most powerful communicators of their day. Although my point, brother and sister, my point is this. You are all Priscilla and Aquilas. You are all part of this mission. Priscilla and Aquila, if you were to say, hey, what do you do? They probably wouldn't say, I make tents. They probably would say, I make disciples. And tent making is how I pay my bills. And while I'm tent making, I make disciples. It's, it, be, it becomes the identity of the church, of Christians, of members. My point is this. What we see in Acts is the church growing legs. What we see in Acts is the very people of the church growing in their ability to make disciples of others. We see regular, average people who are powerfully used for God's mission. As you think of your own lives, we are people who are called to make disciples of others. We're people who are called to to reach out and to, to, to love those right around us. It could be a future leader in this church that you are called to help shape and refine, or it could be a lost individual. But Christian mission is the job of the community. You tracking with me? Let's keep going here. Thirdly, Christian mission is marked by speaking. Christian mission is marked by speaking. Albert Muller, in his book, Convictional Leadership, he said this, leaders are communicators. Leaders are communicators. If you want to be a leader, you've got to communicate. He uses an example of Ronald Reagan. Someone said of Ronald Reagan that Ronald Reagan had one speech. He had one message with a different introduction and a different conclusion. And that, that might be a little overly simplified, but I think there's some truth there. A leader is somebody who knows their message, and they speak it with clarity, and they speak it with consistency. Somebody who, like, you know what this person's going to say before they open their mouth. We are called as Christians to be leaders, to lead others to Christ. And so that means, then, that we've got to be speakers, A mark, if not the very result, of the Holy Spirit is speaking. In Acts chapter 2, what happens when the Holy Spirit comes? They do what? Come on, somebody. 
they speak. In Acts chapter 3, Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit and he speaks. In Acts chapter 4, verse 33, there is this power that they have and that, with that power they speak. They say, we can't not speak. They say, we can't stop testifying about the things that we have seen and that we have heard. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen, facing his own death, all he had to do was shut up. That's all he had to do. And he would have lived. Maybe he would have died an old man. But he couldn't not speak about what he had seen and heard. And it says, with great boldness, full of the Holy Spirit, he spoke the gospel, and it killed him. In Acts chapter 9, we see the saints fill with the Spirit, and they start proclaiming Jesus. In Acts chapter 18, again with Priscilla and Aquila, what do we see? As they are filled with the Spirit, full of the Spirit, they, they have this power. What do they do? They speak. How do they help Apollos? They don't uh, just simply show him by example of like, let's clean some windows together and I'm going to kind of teach you theology just not through words but through deeds. What? <laughs> they speak. <laughs> they sit down. They're like, we got to explain some things to you. And then finally in Acts chapter 28, as Paul is at the very end of his own life, Paul is locked up. He's on house arrest for what? Speaking. And for two years, it says that Paul declared Jesus with boldness until his dying day. Christians are people who speak. Listen, God gave us words. Think of creation. He speaks and he gives us the ability to speak and to know language. God gave us words so that we might know him. But then words were used by the serpent to deceive and to bring, to bring, bring about the fall. Adam and Eve fell away from God. Well, it could be that all is left is a word of judgment, but instead God in love reveals through words his own self to these fallen, broken people. And through words, we see the story of redemption begin to open up. They are told in Israel, communicate this, speak this to your kids, to your grandkids. Pass this word on to the next generation. And then finally, as we get into the Gospels, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And Jesus spoke and he taught and the very core of his teaching was to trust in him. Christians are people who have been entrusted with words. We've been entrusted with a message. And we are called to go and to speak. The Christian mission is about you speaking. Now, it's not just about speaking anything. Like uh, Mark Twain said, there's a big difference between the right word and the wrong word. And example, his example was talking about lightning bugs when you actually mean to talk about lightning. You see the difference? Meaning there are words, like the, the Bible has given us words so that we might know the right words to speak. And this doesn't mean we just go out and spout anything. Like sometimes, some of you need to slow down and, uh, and, and shut up, <laughs> right? Uh, like we, sometimes we need to actually stop talking a little bit so that we can listen, so that we can learn, and so that we can then speak again with the right words. But we are a people who use words to communicate something. Now, it would be a tragedy if I talk about this and I don't even communicate the gospel. <laughs> so uh, maybe you're uh, not a Christian and you're sitting here and you're like, I have no clue what he's talking about right now. What message is this? What words are they supposed to say? Well, I could give you the 
hardback version, or I could give you the wiki, Wikipedia version, or the WikiWiki version, right? Um, I could give you the long version or the short version. I'll give you the short version. God is a holy God. And God has created humans to reflect His holiness in His own image. Thus, they have intrinsic value and worth. Yet humans rebelled against this God and sinned. And we know what that means. Deeply. We understand what sin is. I, I don't think you have to convince somebody that they're guilty. I think they know it. This is why they drink so much. This is why they party so much. We're guilty before God, not just others. Because of that, God's wrath is upon us. God sent His Son, Jesus, who is God, in the flesh, to live the life that we should have lived. He never sinned. To die the death that we should have died. As Jesus hung on the cross, He took God's wrath that was meant for me on Himself, wrath that I deserved. And dying in my place, He bore my judgment. But it doesn't end there. Three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. And if you're a Christian, you're, you say, yes, that's right, amen. Jesus rose from the dead. He then is the victorious Lord. And we are called then, we are commanded. This isn't an option. All people everywhere are commanded to turn from their sin and to trust in Jesus Christ. And he stands today, sit, or sits today at the right hand of the Father as the judge. And one day all people will stand before Jesus. And those who have trusted in him and repented of their sins are people who will hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. But the fakes, the hypocrites, those who were a Christian in name only, but there was nothing in their life, there was, not, there was no real transformation of their heart. Those who have rejected Jesus, they will stand before him as the judge, and they will receive God's wrath for all of eternity, and that's what we call hell. So you are called today, you are invited today to repent and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and he gives the promise for all who do so that you are saved from God's wrath. You are saved from the judgment of your sin. You are, uh, the, the guilt of your sin has been washed away and you stand before God accepted and clean. Well, that's a shorter version of the gospel that we are called to proclaim. And then there's a whole bunch of other stuff of what it means to live this Christian life. But I do want to urge you and I want to plead with you, if you're not a Christian, don't leave here this morning without receiving Jesus Christ as your Savior. If your eyes are being opened to this, that means the Holy Spirit is working in your life. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives us the ability to believe. He gives us the ability to repent. And that actually is my point. My point is that as we speak the gospel, as we proclaim this word to others, we are 100% reliant and dependent on who? The Holy Spirit to open the eyes of the lost, to do the work in your brother, in your son, in your spouse, in your neighbor, in your friend, to do the real work that you can't do, to do the work that you're not called to do. And that is to convert. That is to change them. That is to use these words as means to transform them. And so we give them the gospel. We speak. Speak to your kids if you've got them. Maybe after you eat dinner together, let that be a regular time of teaching the gospel, teaching the Bible to your kids. Or maybe to your spouse. Or to your roommates, maybe on a Friday night when you're having pizza and movies with your roommates, maybe you figure out a way to just kind of work in a little bit of gospel. Or with your coworkers, a coworker says something to you like, oh, my kids are just driving me up the wall. And, and you remember that and you write that down and, and you call them later and you say, hey, I remember you said something about your kids driving you up the wall 
can I pray for you about that? Is there any, any way that I could help you with your kids, maybe give you a night away? And, and we intentionally build relationships with the lost to give us the ability to maybe at some point speak the gospel to that coworker. Don't you realize, friends, that you are all part of this Christian mission, and if you are a Christian, you are called to what? Thank you. You're called to speak and to speak this truth. If I could summarize this, Christian mission is about God's glory, not ours. Christian mission is done in such a way that brings glory to God. Like, too often we think the glory is about us. The glory is not about you. It's not about your personality. It's not about how great you are. Like you can't even talk about how effective you are in your ministry because as soon as you start doing that, you're, you're not leaving room for the Holy Spirit. We can't start bragging on social media about how effective we are with our ability to speak the gospel. Oh, look at me. Look, we can, don't get me wrong, we can talk about lessons we've learned. We can kind of share best practices with each other. We can, we can try to train and use our testimony, but we don't brag about ourselves. We brag about him. Glory goes to God, not to us. Listen, as we close, let me give you two, two different uh, uh, comparisons here. The first one in Acts would be uh, King Herod. We see King Herod in Acts. King Herod is somebody in Acts chapter 12, verses 20 through 23, who is called by those around him uh, uh, someone who has the voice of God. Oh, they say, you, you are a god. Now, King Herod doesn't stop them. King Herod actually likes it. Man, I like that applause. I like those likes. Give me those hearts and thumbs up, fists. I like that. King Herod uh, willingly takes the place of God. He willingly sits in the God's seat and allows people to praise him. And it goes on to say in Acts 12 that God struck him down because God will take the glory that he deserves. Well, we can compare that with Paul and with Barnabas just two chapters later. In Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas, they are, again, being used to do some really wonderful things. And as a result, some people come along and they say, ah, you are gods. And they say, you must be Zeus and you must be Hermes. You are gods. As Paul hears this, he is mortified. Now, some of us would be tempted to say, well, I'm not Zeus or Hermes, but I might be a god. <laughs> my name is Paul. How are you? You know what I mean? But he said, no. And then he says this, we are men just like you. Wow. These are fallen human beings. These are sinners who haven't done all the great things that Paul and Barnabas have done. And he says, no, we are men just like you. And he points them to God, who is worthy of their praise. The only God who is worthy of their glory, not to us. Not to us, but to thy name be the glory. Not to Joel Kurz, not to the Garden Church, not to you, but to his name. Be the glory. Christian mission is all about the glory of God. Paul in Acts 17 is accused. What's he accused of? He's accused of preaching about a king other than Caesar, whose name is Jesus. And the accusation comes strong. These men have turned the world upside down. Well, that is correct. These men have turned the world upside down. 
These people, these Christians, are a people who have proclaimed, they have witnessed with power who Jesus is. And the gospel has gone from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost ends of the known world at the time. Yet at the same time, they're incomplete. These accusers don't know the power behind which they speak. These men don't know the power that Jesus Christ has given his followers with the Holy Spirit. There are some things about the Christian world, about our story as Christian people, that could never be explained without this power. Like, I can't tell you how you can take a group, a small group of scared people, and in 30 years they cross the globe with their message about this Jesus who was crucified by Rome. I can't tell you that. I, I can't give you any human reason as to how that's possible. I can't tell you how the church was able to rebound from the perversions that the church had gone through over the last 2,000 years. I think of the uh, marriage between the church and Rome. I think of the Crusades. Uh, the, the, the Inquisition. I think of the 16th century Roman Catholic Church where the gospel had been lost I think of the transatlantic slave trade where the Bible's used and corrupted to oppress people. Can somebody tell me from a human perspective how it's possible that the church is still alive, active, and growing today with all of this human corruption that people have brought into it in the name of Christ? Oh, that's false. I can't tell you how the church thrives across the world today, but I can tell you this. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I can't, even in the, our own church, I can't tell you how some young dude who's just hanging out in the corner smoking a lot of weed can become a disciple maker of Jesus Christ among his friends. I can't tell you how a neighborhood hustler could be transformed by the gospel of God and, 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 and do something for, for somebody else. I can't tell you how a, a young man, drug-induced, party animal, uh, can go from that to preaching the gospel every week under the bridge underneath 83. I can't tell you some of these things from a human perspective. I don't get it. But I can tell you this. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Man, listen, our church, we made it, we, don't tell a lot, we made a broke down lodge. <laughs> don't tell them downstairs. And we pack it out on Sundays, <laughs> some Sundays more than others. And people who say like, Joel, how do you do this? How, how, did, this, how did this guy, I'm like, and I tell people all the time, I can't, don't look at what I did. Like most, probably 80% of the things I've done to tr strategically haven't worked. <laughs> but I can tell you this, Jesus said, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. When, when the people of God love Jesus Christ, that means the Holy Spirit is working and shining a light on him, making him glorious. And when the Holy Spirit is shining a light on P Jesus, making him glorious, we light up and we're on fire. And we start living for him. We start walking in obedience. There's a story of a young man who was invited by a pastor to come to church week in, week out. The young man lived right across the street from the church, and the pastor could never get him to even come inside the doors of their building. One day, the church building literally caught on fire. The first person on the scene was this young man who was in there, called the fire department. They came and put it out. 
the pastor shows up and he sees the young man inside the church building. And the pastor says, I've invited you to church so many times. And here you are, standing in the church building. And the man said, when I saw the church was on fire, I came. Listen, how many of you know that when a church is on fire with the Holy Spirit, shining a light on Jesus Christ, living their lives in obedience to Christ, walking away from sin, embracing Christ as their Lord, seeing the church as their family, uh, seeing that they have this new identity in Jesus Christ, and witnessing. How many of you know when the church is on fire in that way, people come? Churches grow. It's intriguing. It was said of George Whitfield back in the day. People would go and, 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 and pack out his, and, and someone said, George Whitfield, what do you do to draw the crowds? And he said, I just preach the word and I get lit on fire and people come to watch the show. <laughs> now, of course, you know it's not a show. Listen, I, I pray that the kind of fire that we see here in Acts would continue in Baltimore today. I pray that the kind of, like, we're, we're not in the upper room anymore sitting on our hands waiting. I shouldn't say sitting, they were praying. Praise God for that. But we're not in the upper room waiting. Like so often, you get, you get people who are just kind of like in these prayers, they're like, God, please come, please come, Holy Spirit, we can't go. And I'm like, you already have him. Just go, <laughs> right? Like do you recognize he's among us? He's here. Jesus is with us. You have the Holy Spirit. Oh, I pray that we would have this kind of impact through the very ordinary means of preaching the gospel, loving God, and loving each other. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for Acts. We thank you that we have this book that, that shows for us uh, the development of the church for our inspiration, for our edification. And God, as it is your inerrant, inspired word for us to eat it and to be made strong. Father, I pray that we would do just that. I pray that as the word has gone out, that we would receive this, that we would apply it to our lives. I pray that you would encourage the saints this morning. I pray that you would wake up sleepy Christians this morning. And I pray that those who might be in this room who don't know Jesus as their Savior would know that they know him before they leave. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.